Could somebody give me a glass of water? It's something I forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to do. Um, yeah, this is now the fifth time I'll be uh, preaching on this series. It's the, many of you wouldn't have been here when I started. It was Coincidentally, it was actually a year ago uh, this weekend that I started, and I noticed there are a number of new people here. I'll be talking a bit about a recap of what we've been going on. Um, if, you, if you want to show the first slide, uh, Tom, would be great. So what I've called this message, this message is going to uh, pick up um, some of the themes that, um, that, I've been, that God's been showing through, through the first uh, four messages. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we got the slides ready, mate? The slow, yeah, there we go. So I've called this message, Where Are We Heading?, um, f- fascinatingly enough, this message has been percolating, whatever word you want to describe, in my soul, in my spirit, for over 40 years. First got this message on an extraordinary day back in 1982. It's obviously, things have changed a lot since then, it's developed. But basically, if you have a look at the, the next point, the, what I've called it, it is a prophetic, uh, because the next, yeah, a prophetic perspective on what I believe is happening and why it is happening in Western society, the Western church, and the world in general. Now, right this day, but also over the next generation or so. So, uh, especially for the young people here, uh, this is what I believe we are to expect um, uh, to go on uh, in the next uh, uh, few years over your lifetime. Many of the things may not happen in my lifetime, but I think it's going to happen over the, the next generation, and so we need to be ready. So I've said there, get ready for God's new world order. Amen. Uh, so let's, um, let's pray here. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a good God, that you have the future in your hands, that you love your people and that you love us, Father. I thank you that you've given me this message. I want to be faithful to exactly what you've said, Father. I want to be a, a clear voice, only speaking what you want me to speak, Father. If I, uh, if I, if I stumble or, or get distracted, then please forgive me for that, but I want to be someone that actually speaks your word. And may we have ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to start with a scripture which hopefully you know well. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them... He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and will ask him for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about this text, which 
I think hopefully should be fairly familiar to you. But I just want to sort of emphasize the key points that we're talking about here. Now, the thing is, the key message is that we have to give up everything we have to be a disciple of Jesus. Everything we have, not just the good things, not just the bad things, everything. Now, that may make you think, well, does that mean I've got to go and live in a monastery and, you know, live, give up all my money and everything and go things like that? But Jesus goes on to give two examples of what he's talking about, which shows that that's not exactly what he's talking about. In both examples, so the first example is someone that builds a property and they start out with good plans, but halfway through the building process, they discover that they don't have enough money to complete the project. And everyone looks at them and says, what a fool, what a fool. Why would you start, you know, if you're building a $200,000 extension on your house and you've only got $100,000 in the bank or approved by the bank, why would you start and then get halfway through and say to the builder, oh, I'm sorry, mate, I haven't got enough money. You know, so you're left with this structure without a roof. Everyone's going to say, what a fool, why would you do that? And the second example is actually one that's quite relevant in the, in the world today. <laughs> when someone sets out on a, on a, on a battle against their enemy, just like the, the Wagner troops did in, uh, did in Russia just the other day, and they get halfway through their plan of campaign and say, oops, we can't actually finish this, we haven't got enough men to fight the enemy, so they, they withdraw and go back, and everybody says, what the heck's going on here? So in both cases, we have a situation where the person is able to start their project, um, but they don't actually have enough resources to finish the project. So Jesus is not saying that the moment you become a disciple, you have to give up all your money, give up all your relationships and go and live in a monastery. What he's saying is you've got to understand that ultimately you have to give up everything you have. So don't start the journey unless you understand that because God, there's going to come a time when God is going to require you to give this thing up and don't be a fool, the fool being the person who starts on the journey and then is not able to complete it. So here's the point, right? We're all called, if, if we're following Jesus, the call on our life is that it will cost us everything we have. Now, that's not to become a super Christian. That's not, that's not the, the law to become a pastor. It's not as if there's two grades of Christians, those who sit in the pews and, and do one thing and those who, who want to be in ministry. It's the basis of being a, a disciple. If you're not willing to give up everything you have, then... You're not on the road to discipleship. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. All of those things that apply to being a Christian, they don't apply to you because unless you're willing to give up everything you have, you're not actually a disciple. So we go to the next slide. I think it's covered. So what we have to do is we have to count the cost. Count the cost before we, make, before we go out on the journey to make sure we're willing to pay it Otherwise, we're not going to last the distance. And that's the basic message that Jesus is saying. Now, how does this apply to us today? What's God, how have I, why have I brought up this scripture here and what, what I believe God is saying to the church today? Well, there's a couple of things. First thing is that this message is central to the holiness that God is demanding from his people. Remember, the basic message I've been preaching, if uh, those of you who are, who, who've heard it before, is that I believe the word that God is speaking into the church today 
into all of us in this church, other churches, the whole of the church in the Western world, is that he is demanding a holy church, demanding that we take seriously the call of the gospel, the requirement that we live holy lives. So it's central to that is the message. But secondly, what I believe, if I was to put it in words, what I believe God is saying through this passage is this. He's saying that everything you have is what I believe the Lord is saying. Everything you have, you owe to me. And I am now, just now, beginning to call in this debt. God is calling in the debt that we owe him, which is our very lives, and is going to start costing people much to be disciples. So, our journey so far, I want to indicate where we've come for those who didn't, weren't here for the previous four messages. I first of all talked about the fact that God is demanding a holy church. I defined what holiness is being like Jesus. I also said that the reason why is that in the context is that God, I, I, God is overthrowing world systems and authorities and powers at the moment, and it's causing a lot of uh, ructions in the world, things like the COVID virus and uh, problems in America, problems in the Ukraine. I believe they're all symptoms of what God is actually doing in the world in this generation. It's not Satan doing it. It's not just coincidence. It is actually God at work in the world, working out his purposes. So the second message I talked about, the key being to understanding what's going on, is that the main sin in the world, the main sin in the church, is idolatry. Idolatry is we define as being when a person sets up an image of God, which is not true, in their heart, it doesn't have to be a physical image, but it did in ancient times, but they set up an image in their heart and they worship that image rather than the true God. Right? And that robs God of his glory. Uh, the, the best example of uh, idolatry, the most obvious example, is the cultural worship um, especially in America, but certainly in a lot of Western countries, of identifying Western culture as somehow God-ordained, the whole idea of America, that they have a, a destiny to rule the world, and all of these sorts of things. They're actually idolizing their own nation rather than the true God, and that robs God of his glory. Our response as Christians, the third message is that we need to turn against that tide and resolve that we are going to live for God's glory. We are going to live for God's glory. And the fourth message I said was that if we actually look at what the Scripture says about that, that glory comes through suffering. And that therefore, living for God's glory inevitably involves uh, a certain amount of suffering in life. So again, I won't go into all the details of these messages. I think they're all online. But all of these themes are going to be pulled together in this next message. So... I want to understand the next thing is that at this point, it's an interesting way of wording it, but I want to say that God, in all seriousness, God has a bit of a problem. I put the word problem in inverted commas because, of course, God being God doesn't have any problems. But in a sense, he does because his problem is that he has to work through human beings and we human beings, we're all frail and weak and, uh, and uh, all that sort of thing. And so God's purpose is, if, if God just had to do it all on his own, it wouldn't be a problem at all. But the fact is, he chooses to work through us, and that leaves him with a problem. What is this problem? And it's this. 
that we, the church, have lived so long in what I will call a Christian culture that we have forgotten that this is not actually part of the gospel. That in the first century, there was no such thing as a Christian culture, that when Paul went around the Roman Empire uh, preaching the gospel, he didn't have an expectation that the people would be sympathetic to his message. Now, this Christian culture started, you know your history, in the fourth century. Um, a long time ago, 15, 1,600 years ago, uh, so much so that it's, uh, it's uh, probably uh, before many of us were born. Um, but it came at the end of two centuries of sporadic persecution of the early church. Um, and uh, an emperor came onto the throne named Constantine, and he was, uh, he was um, sympathetic to the Christian message. And Christianity very quickly, within a generation, became the dominant religion of Western Europe. Uh, so much so that, uh, qu quite amazingly, that uh, straight away 90% of people decided that they were Christians. Hardly surprising when the Roman Emperor was a Christian and gave rewards for people to become a Christian. And this was the dominant culture in Western society for the next 1800 years, which is a long time. It began to unravel early in the 20th century in places like Europe and Australia. Uh, and so we're sort of living in the, you know, in that uncomfortable position where some parts of our culture are still Christian, but other parts are very much turning away from Christianity. Um, and the last bastion of Christian culture really is the United States of America. And what we are seeing is before our very eyes, that culture is unraveling in our generation in ways which many of us find quite amazing and disturbing. But what I want to say is that I believe that this unravelling is not the work of man and not the work of the devil. It is actually the work of God. It is God's plan. It is God's purpose. And we shouldn't be fighting against it. We should be understanding what God is doing and why. So why? Why on earth would God be trying to unravel this Christian culture? first point I want to make is simply this, that many Christians, I'm not saying all Christians, but certainly the, a, a very strong position that's been around uh, a long time is that many Christians want a Christian culture because it makes it easier to be a Christian. It's not actually easy to be a Christian if you live in Arab countries or if you live in Asian countries. You have to live differently to the culture around you. Um, Things like, for example, uh, 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 the, the legislation of gay marriage. That's caused a lot of, apart from the moral issues, it's caused a lot of consternation amongst Christians simply because of the issue, well, how are we to respond? We don't believe that that is right, but if culture then says it is right, how do we respond to that? It makes it difficult. What do we do if a gay couple who are married come into our church? How do we respond? And it's like... We've lived in this cocoon for a long time which says that the world basically adopts the same standards as we are and when the world adopts different standards, we find it very difficult to cope. So one of the reasons why we want a Christian culture and we feel very comfortable with a Christian culture is it makes it easier to be a Christian. But, and here's the big but, God says in the passage we've just described that 
it actually, in order to be a disciple, you have to give up everything you have. Everything. So, how can having a sympathetic culture make that any easier? It can't. What it does make easier is it makes it a lot easier to put on a veneer of being a Christian, to just follow the culture and do everything. In other words, to live a superficial life, what they used to call nominal Christianity, to live this superficial life where you look like you're a disciple, you have all the outward trimmings of being a disciple, you might go to church every week, but you haven't actually given up everything you have. God would rather have, this is my message, God would rather have a small church of true disciples rather than a large church of pretend disciples. He would obviously much rather have a large church of true disciples, but when push comes to shove, I believe God would rather a church small in number but composed of people who actually are prepared to pay the price and are true disciples than a church that is much larger in number. I said that this message had been percolating around with me for 40 years. I'll just tell you briefly the background there. There was one day in late 1982, which is the most extraordinary day of my life. It's the only day where I believe I've actually heard the audible voice of God. So, don't, I'm not claiming to be super spiritual as if I suddenly live in a, a realm where every day I hear these voices. But on this day, the one occasion in 40 years where I believe God spoke to me in a voice so loud that it was either audible or it was so clear that it, in my spirit it wasn't. And it was a, uh, what he actually told me was to get baptised. And I knew that was going to upset my family, my mum and dad, and I knew it was going to upset my church, because at that time I was going to a church which didn't believe in believers' baptism. So I said to God after I heard this voice, I said, if this is really you, I said, you're going to have to show me, but, you know, how, how can I do this, because it's going to cost me, you know, the, no, it's going to cause ructions in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in church and with my parents. And I got home after hearing this voice and opened my Bible. And again, I don't normally do this. I opened it at random and I came to this passage. Whoever would come after me must hate father and mother, brothers and sisters. Oh, okay. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll take that. So I, just, I need to understand what's going on here. And, and I went on a walk. And on that walk, God started to speak to me in my spirit. <clears throat> and one thing he said to me, which I've never forgotten, he said that he despises, hates the culture that we live in. It's not... Now, the thing is, of course, in many ways our culture is wonderful. I wouldn't want to live in any other culture. It's nice, it's you know, better than many other cultures. But I ask God, what, why? What's going on here? Why, why do you feel that way? I actually felt in my spirit this anger. So I said, why? Why do you feel that way? And I then saw person after person dropping over the edge into the abyss. And he said to me, how many people do you think, how many millions of people do you think have gone to hell over the last 2,000 years 
thinking they were Christians because they live in this culture. Because the church has said to them, just come to church. How many millions, and I ask that question, how many people, when you look over the history of, of the Western society, how many millions of people have gone to hell thinking that they were actually believers because they put on the, the veneer of Christianity and because the church in its way has supported that. And that was the start of this message for me. Uh, obviously, a lot of things have gone on since then. I want to talk now, to understand this message, about a concept called the remnant church. The remnant, we start with the message from, uh, if you know the story of Gideon in, in Judges chapter 7, you know that Gideon was called to save Israel, and he started out with an army of 32,000 men. And God said to him, no, no, that's too many. If I save Israel with 32,000 men, everyone will think that it's you who did it. And through a process of elimination, he willed it down. And he finished up with 300 men. And God said, that's the size of army I need to win a battle. 300 men who are committed to the task. Not 32,000 who are just there because they're conscripts. 300 men who will fight for me. Second thing is, and it's very interesting, that you, you, it feel, it, uh, well, I'll get into this in a moment, but... Uh, fits in with what uh, you're going to be hearing in a few weeks' time about Elijah. Um, the concept of the remnant came out at the time of the exile, 586 BC, so two and a half thousand years ago, when Israel was moving in disobedience and uh, uh, just following their, the superficial rules of their religion. And God said, I'm going to judge and I'm going to wipe out the people. And he, he actually talked about the fact that they're, they're going to cut down and cut down and cut down and only a remnant will survive. And he said, but out of that remnant, I will free the people of idolatry. And the remnant was, will be preserved. And the final quote I want to have there is from a man, a great revivalist called John Wesley. 18th century man of God who uh, transformed England uh, in, the, in the 1800s. He said this, he said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. God is not into quantity. It is not the number in your army, the number in your church, the number uh, in your party that determine the outcome. Right? It is not how strong you are politically that determines the outcome. It is whether you are fully committed to the work of God and whether you're prepared to give up everything you have for the sake of the gospel. So let's pull this all together then. What I believe in the, in the, in the, in the, in the light of this, this is what I believe is happening and will continue to happen over the next generation or so. First thing is, I believe that Western nations, especially the USA and UK, will lose power and geopolitical influence. What I basically mean by that is that what we're starting to see now, that these nations are going down and their influence is waning. Other nations are coming up, China, uh, uh, India, nations like that. There is a shift in the balance. I talked in an earlier message about how God is overturning 
the iceberg and that as a result these waves are going out. I believe this is going and I believe it's of God and that's what's going to happen. Secondly, and I think this is important, is that the secret sins of Western nations will be exposed. Now that's already starting to happen, um, but they will be exposed to the extent that no genuine Christian will be able to say, I support that, and those Christians who have idolised their nation will face such a crisis that they will be forced to abandon either their idol or their faith in God. Right? I believe it is, it is the, 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 part of the issue about having superficial Christianity is that you've got to hide things. You put on a veneer on the outside of what things are like, but inwardly you're unregenerate. That's what our Western society has been like. And so we have this whole thing of this outward appearance of Christian. God is exposing that. He's under, uh, overturning it and he's exposing the secret sins of our nations. And we're going to have to come to the point of saying, that's not right. That's not right. I love my country, but that's not right. I can't support that. Thirdly, the same thing, unfortunately, is happening in church leaders, and we've seen a lot of that in recent years. Leaders that have had great respect, uh, Ravi Zachariah, within days, weeks of his, of his dying after a seemingly fruitful ministry, exposed as a, as a sexual offender. We're seeing similar things happening in Australia with church leaders. Of course, we have the Catholic problems in the Catholic Church. They should be of great concern to us that our leaders have not been living according to the, the light of the gospel. The fact that there are secret sins is a, should be a thing of great concern to us because our God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. So there are three things that I think are going to happen, and they're of God. The fourth thing is that as a result of these three, what we understand as Christian culture will thereby be demolished. Now, I, don't, I use the word demolished there. I don't know whether I mean by that it's going to be a sudden thing. I don't think it probably will be. It'll be a gradual thing. But it will mean that we as Christians are going to have to need to learn more and more how to live counterculturally. We'll no longer be able to say, I will just follow the laws and the rules and the, and the, and the, and the traditions of my culture. We're going to have to go back to first principles and say, what does it mean for me to live as a believer in Jesus, as a disciple, in a society which follows a different standard. And this is where I believe we're going to be required to give up what we have for Jesus. Right? And finally, as a result of this, I believe we're going to see a great falling away of those not prepared to pay the cost of true discipleship. I believe that what we're going to see is the numbers of those who call themselves Christians living in our society, uh, in our Western society, they're going to become disappointed, disillusioned with what they see going on and they're going to say, God can't be in this and they're going to fall away. Already in America this is happening uh, in abundance. There are whole internet pages devoted to people who are uh, de-Christianising, coming out of American versions of uh, Southern of uh, fundamentalist Christianity, and uh, I think it's just going to keep on happening. But all I want to say is I think this is actually part of God's plan. It's not a pleasant thing, but it's part of God's plan. But the final step is this. When the remnant that remains has been purified, so when it gets down to the stage where those who are 
with God in the church, the true disciples, they will cry out to God and God will hear. And then we will see the greatest revival that's ever happened in the history of humanity. So I, I believe that is the road that we are treading. That is where we're heading. And I said, I'm not saying it will happen tomorrow. I'm saying it probably will happen within the lifespan of the younger members of our, our congregation. But all of us need to be ready for what is happening. A couple of scriptures here, key passages. Uh, rather interestingly, it fits in exactly with what uh, Lee's going to be talking about in the time um, about Elijah. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? This is what Paul is saying, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God only needs the remnant. He doesn't need the, the thousands upon thousands of, uh, of, uh, of non-committed believers. And the second one from Isaiah chapter 4, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be a pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, the remnant, they will be called holy. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory of God will be a canopy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is coming to his people, but hard times must come first. What do we do? How do we respond to this? First thing is, and I need to say this for, for pastoral reasons, apart from anything else, is that you need to seek to understand this message and seek God's validation. You don't believe it because I've said it. You take it to the Lord. I, I'm saying that I believe this is what God is revealing to me and through me. Um, you don't believe it because I say so. Take it to the Lord. Is God saying that? If so, you've got to adopt it for yourself. Secondly... We need to count the cost now of being a disciple. Now, not when the difficult times come. Are you ready for God's plan? Are you ready to live for the glory of God through the difficult times when they come? Thirdly, stop expecting your culture to make it easy to be a disciple. Stop trying to re-Christianize society, which is what a lot of Christians seem to me to be doing, because in doing so, you may actually be fighting against God. I believe it is God's plan, not my plan, not anybody else's plan, but God's plan to, that we're going through what we're going. Um, so don't fight it. Learn to live with it. Finally, fourthly, we need to learn to live holy lives in a culture that is not necessarily receptive to Christian truth. Colossians 4 verse 6, very interesting verse. I don't hear it quoted much these days. Paul says that, let your life be filled with grace and seasoned with salt. In other words, saying that in your, in, when you live in a culture that is not Christian, you don't try and be antagonistic to that culture. You try and build bridges. You try and make, it, uh, make, it, make the message palatable. Uh, find 
points of common interest. You read through the book of Acts, you see how Paul related to pagan cultures. Read his sermon that he preached to the Greeks in Athens. Um, build bridges into your culture. Don't expect them to become more Christian before they actually hear the message and understand it. Uh, next point. As a church, all those points are all individual, of course, as a church, and to the church leaders I say, continue to preach the full gospel including the call to give it all to Jesus. I mean, I've been part of this church for years. I know that that is the heart of the leadership. It's nothing new. It's what you want to do. But continue to do it. It will not necessarily bear immediate fruit. Um, I think churches that preach the gospel will continue to grow. Other churches that are soft on the commitment side, they're the ones that will lose a lot of a lot of, uh, of, of people, but continue to do the things that are base, that the basics are right. Continue to preach the full gospel, to call people to, to give up their life for Jesus and to, and to follow him. And finally, when these sufferings do arise, and I believe they will, rejoice in these sufferings, knowing that they are for your holiness and for your glory. God does not call us to an easy life. He calls us to a holy life. And the sufferings that we have to go through for the kingdom of God to, to come uh, are for our glory. And the weight of glory that will be released upon us is far, far greater than the, uh, than the cost of whatever it might be to, that we might have to give up. So finally, we have the final challenge. What is our key challenge? Where do you stand? Where do I stand? Are you ready to give up everything you have to follow Jesus? You may have called yourself a Christian for many years. Uh, you may be sitting in the pew. And you might say, yes, of course I've given up everything. But it might be that just at this moment, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and saying, what about that? What about that area of your life? What about that area of your life? What about your money? What about your relationships? What about your work? Have you really given Jesus control of everything? I want to give... Uh, are we going to have some, uh, a song? Finish with a song? Is that, uh, is that, was that the plan, Dave? Where is, where is Dave? Yeah. Are we going to finish with a... Maybe uh, El Shaddai might be a, a useful one to finish with. But, you know... Are we ready to give up everything we have? The call is out there. I believe God is speaking. Are we responding? Are we those who are part of those hundred men and women that John Wesley was calling for, who love, uh, who hate nothing but sin and love, desire nothing but God? Or are we going to be amongst those who, who, uh, who get disappointed when the difficult times come? Um, don't leave without dealing with that issue. If God is speaking to you, don't leave today without uh, coming forward uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and getting prayer. Amen.